For this episode of the Clinical Consult, I'm fortunate to be joined again by Dr. Marsha Eckerd, a licensed health service psychologist in Connecticut on Connecticut's Autism Spectrum Disorder Advisory Council to discuss neurodiversity and a different perspective on autism spectrum disorders from the vantage point that I think many health, many mental health professionals encounter during their clinical and graduate training and, and, and perhaps practica. But First, Marcia, I, I want to welcome you and, and say thanks for joining me again today. Thanks, Daniel. I'm glad to join the program. That phrase I used just a moment ago, neurodiversity, help me understand what that means. There tends to be an assumption that there's a normative way of being and thinking and communicating and that anything else is pathology. And neurodiversity refers to the idea that there could be a number of different kinds of brains and a number of neurotypes. And that has to do with the wiring or inter interconnectivity of the brain. And so there can be ways that are different from what we consider normative. So many people are neurodiverse, people who have ADHD, for example, and those who have autism spectrum are, um, could be considered to be neurodiverse. When we talk to somebody who is an adult in the autism spectrum community, and also some researchers currently, they refer to people who um, are on the autism spectrum as neurodivergent, and to the quote, normative quote community as neurotypical. So many of those who are listening us, to us today would probably consider themselves to be neurotypical. Let, let's shift right into what I'm hearing from you as, as a kind of different model for different cognitive styles. And, and for the sake of this discussion, maybe we can talk most specifically about kind of autism spectrum disorders. And I appreciate you mentioned there are different you know, types of cognitive styles and including ADHD and, and, and learning disabilities. But that social construct model that, that I heard you talking about, it, it sounds like it doesn't conceptualize an autism spectrum disorder as a neurodevelopmental condition that, that needs to be quote unquote fixed or, or changed, but instead it sees it as a diverse cognitive style that has a particular set of characteristics and, and assets. Could, could you say, say more about that? There's several levels of response to that. The first is that the very name autism spectrum disorder suggests that we're talking about pathology. Um, and it's defined as a neurodevelopmental disorder, mean that, meaning that the normal process of development went awry. A different way of referring to this, which is talked about by researchers such as uh, Simon Barry Cohen, Tony Atwood, Lorna Wing, Barry Present, many others, is the idea that instead of being a disorder, it's a, dis it's a difference. And so we expect people to behave like us when they don't behave like us. We, um, we call that pathology. And one of the 
period for autism is difficulty with reciprocal social relationships. So therefore we expect people who are on the spectrum to relate the way we do, make eye contact, small talk, to use the regular facial expressions, and to basically follow our facial rules, our, our social rules. But um, the fact is our social communication is 70 to 90% based on nonverbal cues. And those nonverbal cues are often missed by those on the spectrum. They're dependent on language. So that what isn't stated, what's inferred, what isn't literal, often people get, people miss. And neurotypicals also, there's a lot that we don't state or a lot that we're vague about. So we might say, be thoughtful. And what exactly does that mean? Or we might say, good to see you. And someone who is neurodiverse might think, well, what exactly do they mean? You know, is it good to see me? Where do I stand with this person? And so we make assumptions about people with autism. And I think one thing that's good to remember is that according to the CDC, one in 59 children now are being diagnosed as somewhere on the spectrum. And there's an enormous heterogeneity of people on the spectrum from people who are nonverbal and who have very severe functional difficulties to people who one would not even think of as on the spectrum because they're very bright, they function well, and they, um, to the eye of the of the of the clinician might seem to be totally what they would consider to be normal and so we make assumptions about people who who are on who are on the autism spectrum we expect that they're going to lack empathy and they're going to lack emotions because they don't show the facial or body language, or we assume they prefer to be alone. They don't want to share experience. They don't want to share enjoyment, which is part of the, the, the ADOS test, which is considered the standard gold standard test for um, autism in children. But in fact, the, if you are, knowledgeable in the, about the autism community, you realize that they do have emotions. They very much want to ex share experiences. They do have empathy, a lot of empathy, and they also have quite, quite, you know, interesting senses of humor. And so we really have to take a lot of our assumptions about autism and, uh, you know, and who and what autistic people look like and, and change it because um, people with autism can have very strong feelings and there's a lot of communication that they have with each other that's very empathic and very supportive. But there are differences in how they think. There are differences in how they communicate. And some of the research has said that when it comes to social creativity, which has to do with coming up with novel ways of handling social situations, people who are on the spectrum often are very similar in terms of their capacity to do that to neurotypical people. But there are significant differences in how they think. They're very literal, they're very truthful, and they're very direct. Many have sensory hypersensitivities, and many have areas of intense interest, which somehow we call interest something pathological, and many people are changing that word in itself. 
which simply means they have areas of expertise. They're very focused on detail and often their analytical abilities and their abilities to see patterns far surpass those of the neurotypical population. I couldn't help but react to, to my own life. And I was reflecting as, as you were talking there about that example of good to see you and how we use a kind of, we take for advantage that neurotypical perspective where we, we don't necessarily mean that in, in a literal way, but I'm just thinking about different examples in my life. And I know just before we, we started recording this, I was just walking down the hallway and I said, Oh, how, how are you to, to another person passing by? And that, so when you said that example, I just immediately, it was like, gosh, I need to, examine some of my own some of my own assumptions about how information that we communicate is, is perceived and, it, and just like you were saying in, in diverse ways but I want to switch the, the perspective if, if you'll let me just for a moment and kind of take this from that perspective that I, I mentioned it in the beginning and so I think we're talking about this neurodiversity as very strength based and, and that's that's very positive is, is there a possibility that folks who meet criteria for an autism spectrum disorder, you know, as, as we define it in the DSM, might, might look at this and just say, well, well, wait a second here. I mean, I've got this disorder and, and I identify you know, with, with that criteria and I, and I see it as something that does impair my, my day-to-day functioning. And, I, and that's, how I, that's how I see it. I guess I just... What's your reaction to that? And how, how might we you approach know, that? It's interesting because I was just looking on Twitter and someone who was on the spectrum tweeted, what do you love about being autistic? And people talked about loving being different, loved that they could see things other people couldn't. So they had a lot of positive things to say. But there's a difference between calling something a disorder, which means it's something that has to be cured and fixed, to saying that something's a difference, but that doesn't rule out that there could be a disability. And I think that's an important consideration because just because something's a difference, for example, if you're having difficulty with, you have a different way of understanding socially, you have a different way of communicating socially, that might present a disability for you if you're trying to work, for example, in an office of people who are neurotypical and having different expectations of you. And it's been said by a researcher that I know that he considers just about everyone who is on the spectrum. And we were talking about people who are considered Asperger's, which is still a word used in Europe, to have PTSD just from the level of rejection, of criticism, of even bullying that they've experienced. So there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of depression. There are a lot of comorbid issues such as apraxia. Um, And so because someone has this difference in terms of their development doesn't mean there aren't areas of disability that would be a focus of therapy. And so it's, it's those areas of disability where you would want to kind of humanize that sense of the, that there's a, a, real, a real change in a, in a difficult way to a person's day-to-day functioning and interaction that is kind of a result of, of those symptoms. 
one of the things that I found fascinating in talking with adults in the autism community is that they don't agree with the DSM-5 notion of level one, level two, and level three in terms of how much you need help. There are people who don't need a whole lot of help who, in terms of being able to be functional in their daily lives, they, um, and they've learned to mask many of their social differences. So they've learned to make eye contact or they've learned to say some of the right things. But the level of functioning says nothing about the extremity of the stress they experienced or how anxious or depressed or how much they have to struggle in order to um, maintain that level of functioning in their day-to-day lives. So they might see themselves as having extreme levels of difficulty. A moment ago, you mentioned that statistic from the CDC on the number of folks who receive a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder to use our, our DSM language. From your perspective, is this, is this something that's underdiagnosed that people as they navigate their world are, are not recognizing symptoms of this kind of cognitive style that we're talking about? Yes, and, and that's one reason why you and I are doing this interview because I can't overstate that. Researchers refer to a lost generation of adults who were never identified. Because people have learned to mask their difficulties, that people don't think of autism. They, people on the spectrum have many comorbidities and those can be identified. They get many diagnoses of anxiety disorder, depression, bipolar, OCD, ADD, and even bipolar because they can be seen as resistant or oppositional. But the fact of the matter is people don't think of autism. And let me give you one really powerful example, which is that you had a little kid who was on the autistic spectrum and he had a area of special interest. He actually had two, one which was on ghosts and the other which was in detectives. And he used to carry around a detective badge all the time. And this person as an adult disclosed his autism diagnosis and his name is Dan Aykroyd. And what he did with his special interest is he wrote Ghostbusters. So popular movie. So that, you know, when we see someone very functional and they're sitting in front of us, they have often been diagnosed or experienced these different aspects of their lives, their social difficulties, their sensory difficulties, any motor difficulties they had, this history of, uh, of being teased or rejected, the, uh, their, their tendency to be literal, to miss jokes, to miss the inferences, and all of those things are kind of different. And when you can give someone either a diagnosis or something that would consider, you know, a person is having many autism traits, it kind of pulls this together for them in a very useful way and allows us to help them make sense of their lives and also to address things like anxiety or depression, which is critically important because there is an incredibly high suicide rate for very intelligent, especially young men 
on the, uh, on the autism spectrum who would be considered Asperger's. And that is something that clinicians need to take very seriously. Although also in answer to your question, women, uh, women are particularly underdiagnosed because they can look more normative and their areas of interest can be more socially appropriate, like art, for example. So um, yes, absolutely, adults are incredibly underdiagnosed. Such an important area of discussion, and I know we've recorded a, 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 another episode on that topic, and I, so I, w- I would love to continue it, but I do want to, I want to I paint a, a clinical picture for you right now and get your sense uh, about how you'd, how you'd proceed. And because I know a lot of our listeners are kind of wondering, talk, we're having this discussion about neurodiversity, like what, what do I do with that in, in, in my capacity as a mental health provider? So th- there's this scenario, let's say, you know, you're, you're working in a private practice and a patient you know, with a history of, of problems with social communication and some of those comorbid presentations like anxiety and depression that, that you outlined previously walks into your, your office and wants to work with you. How do you balance out this, you know, the treatment for the con- presenting concerns if that is in regards to improving social communication with, a, with an appreciation for, for what you're saying about neurodiversity and different cognitive styles? Well, the very first thing I would say is when someone walks into your office and they talk about social issues, about uh, rejection, you know, they may initially present with the depression or anxiety. Don't rule out autism. Don't rule out the possibility of a spec of a neurodiverse individual sitting in front of you. Being bright doesn't rule it out. And understand that people who are on the spectrum communicate differently and they think differently. So for example, they're very literal. What you say is exactly what they'll think you mean. And they're very detail oriented so that they don't do well with open-ended questions. If you sit there and you just ask them, um, well, what's your concern or how do you feel? They're not necessarily going to know how to answer. Whereas if you ask very specific questions, they're going to be able to, to share their experience with you much more effectively. And people who are on the spectrum, while they do have strong emotions, especially about being honest, about truth, about justice, they also often have a great difficulty identifying their emotions. and. One of the things that people in this autistic community talk about is being helped in therapy to identify emotions, sometimes by identifying their physical experience or identifying the context to understand that, oh, I'm, I'm feeling very anxious now by, and I can tell that by how I'm feeling physically or about what I'm doing. We, we need to help them not so much become neurotypical. They are not broken neurotypicals, but they may need to navigate the neurotypical world. So we might help them think of strategies or skills for handling some of the issues that are making them anxious or making them depressed or to value their own strengths and which perhaps have been dismissed because many people who are on the spectrum 
even those with four-year uh, university degrees are treated as less intelligent than they are simply because of their diagnosis or they're grossly underemployed because they don't present well in an interview or they can have difficulty in a neurotypical work setting that's, for example, very loud or people are expected to make inferences, things aren't stated clearly. So we need to understand all those aspects and ask specific questions about those so that we understand how's our how's our uh the person sitting in front of us doing in terms of their relationships in terms of their employment in terms of their feelings about themselves and to do it in a way as i said that is specific and literal and make sure that you understand the communication of the other person to validate you know and, and let me make sure i've got this right and not to make assumptions that we've understood based on a neurotypical communication while we don't want to rule out an autism spectrum disorder as you said a moment ago i want to be mindful of how clinicians might proceed with a diagnosis in that realm in a way that that's that's ethical and sticks within the, their zones of competence how, how might they proceed with that while maintaining their awareness of, of neurodiversity as you've described it? Well, I think the first thing is that even though we're trying to formulate this as a difference that might have areas for treatment or of disability as opposed to a disorder, some of the framework of DSM-5 is not is still helpful. In other words, these people do have problems with social communication in the neurotypical world. Um, one person with autism described it as, I'm a freshwater fish. If you put me in salt water, I struggle. But if you put me in freshwater, I'm okay. These are all people who've been struggling in an environment that basically thinks processes and has expectations different from the, what, the way they function. So getting some kind of history from the person based on their social relationships, based on the kinds of difficulties they had and the kinds of responses they had is certainly one important thing. DSM-5 talks about repetitive behaviors and certainly many people on the spectrum talk about areas of, in of interest areas of enthusiasm, a depth of interest that they have in particular subjects. And um, there are other issues such as the cognitive style that I mentioned in terms of very literal detail-oriented thinking. Most have issues with sensory processing. Um, and, uh, you know, some have issues in terms of executive functioning. So to really ask questions about the person's functioning in relationships, at, the, in, in, at work, their history, and to see if the cognitive issues, the social issues, also emotional reactivity issues, because as I said, people who are on the spectrum do have intense, they do have feelings in particular about truth, about justice. And so if someone is either treating them very badly or somebody is asking them to respond flexibly, for example, and they have great difficulty with flexibility and transitions, you might see someone who does react very strongly emotionally 
And so looking for that in the history as well, how do they handle transitions? How do they handle things when they're expected to respond flexibly and quickly to something that's novel? All of those things are things a clinician could look for. Dr. Marsha Eckerd, this has been just such an insightful and important conversation. I, I, I really want to thank you for your time today, but we will need to wrap up from here. This has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. I'm Daniel Elkert, reminding our listeners that this and all episodes of The Clinical Consult are intended for general information and discussion purposes only and do not serve as formal clinical advice or an endorsement of any particular treatment approach.